0: And now we're going to hear the word of God, which my judge is going to read for us.
1: If you have your Bibles with you, please open them at Ephesians in chapter 5. Paul's epistle to the Ephesians chapter 5, and we'll read together the whole of the chapter. So Ephesians chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 and the whole of the chapter, I'm reading from the authorised version. Ephesians 5 verse 1. Be ye therefore... Followers of God, as dear children, and walk in love, as Christ also hath loved us, and hath given Himself for us an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet smelling savour. But fornication and all uncleanness or covetousness, let it not be once named among you as becometh saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking Be not, ye therefore, partakers with them. For ye were sometimes darkness, but now are ye light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness and righteousness and truth, proving what is acceptable unto the Lord. And have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. For it is a shame even to speak of those things which are done of them in secret. But all things that are reproved are made manifest by the light. For whatsoever doth make manifest is light. Wherefore he saith, Awake thou that sleepest, and arise from the dead, and Christ shall give thee light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools. But as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. Wherefore be ye not unwise, but understanding what the will of the Lord is, and be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always. For all things, unto God and the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting yourselves to one another in the fear of God. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the saviour of the body. Therefore, or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth and cherisheth it, even as the Lord, the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let every one of you, in particular, so love his wife even as himself, and, see, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So, it reads the Word of God.
0: Well, it's a great delight to have with us this evening a long standing friend of the Christian Institute, the Reverend William MacLeod, the Minister of Knightswood Free Church of Scotland, continuing in Glasgow. Pleasure to have you with us, and I'm sure you'll warm our hearts as you talk to us.
2: Thank you very much, John. It's indeed a great pleasure and privilege. To be here at the Christian Institute once more. Um, Christian Institute is a body that I very much admire. I love the work that they do, and we, as churches, are very indebted to them for this work. Now, the subject that has been given to me is Jonathan Edwards, 1703 to 1758. Uh, Jonathan Edwards is arguably America's greatest theologian, arguably also America's greatest philosopher, and arguably also one, at least, of America's greatest preachers. His most famous sermon is probably the most famous sermon preached in America, Sinners, In the Hands of an Angry God, preached at Enfield, 8th July, 1741. Many people were converted through that sermon. And indeed, just fairly recently, I met a young man from England who had been studying uh, North American literature at university. And amongst the things they had to study was this sermon by Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And uh, this was used for his conversion um, just in these last few years. So it's wonderful how Edwards is still used by God in the salvation of sinners. Edwards drew deeply on his Puritan forebears of the uh, 17th century, but he was also involved with the evangelical movement uh, of the eighteenth century. He was mightily used in the Great Awakening, 1740, 41, 42. He was a friend of George Whitfield. Many of you will know of Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones. And uh, Dr. Lloyd Jones speaks of um, when he came across the works of uh, Jonathan Edwards Uh, in 1929 in a Cardiff bookshop. He found two big volumes of Edwards' works and this had a massive impact upon uh, Dr. Lloyd-Jones. Indeed, in many ways, it was the strongest influence upon his theology and his outlook. It's not just... Evangelicals that are interested in uh, Edwards, also liberals are, because he was such a great figure and uh, so influential. Yale University Press in 1957 began a project of editing all his works and uh, publishing, publishing all that could be found of Edwards, all his notebooks and all his letters and everything that could be found it began in 1957 with the freedom of the will and then completed the project in 2008 with the with volume 26 which is entitled a catalog of books uh, it was l- lists of books that he had lent out to people lists of books that he was uh, interested in acquiring and so on so Now, all of Edwards is available, 26 volumes. Uh, I think it'll cost you something like £2,500 to buy it, but I'm sure it's worth every penny. I would recommend Ian Murray's readable biography of Jonathan Edwards, published by the Banner of Truth. As you know, uh, Ian Murray's a, a great writer of history and of biography. Very edifying, very profitable. But also, um, I would recommend George Marston's um, scholarly biography published by Yale. It's also very readable and uh, is largely sympathetic to theologically with uh, Jonathan Edwards. And um, he is able to make use of all the Edwards material and has spent... A uh, good many years researching for this biography, so it's it's really good reading. So tonight, I want to I want first of all to tell you the story of Edwards, and then to draw some lessons from his life. Edwards was born uh, October fifth, seventeen o three. Interestingly, the exact same year as. John Wesley was born. John Wesley, who was so influential in the revivals of the um, 18th century in England and, indeed, Ireland and roundabout, um, born the same year as Jonathan Edwards. Edwards was born in the East Windsor manse, Connecticut, in New England, his father, Timothy Edwards, was minister, a gifted theologian, and he too was blessed with a number of revivals during his ministry. <coughs> Jonathan's mother was Esther Stoddard, the daughter of Solomon Stoddard, who for 60 years was minister of Northampton and uh, the most influential uh, minister in that whole area. And we'll come across Solomon Stoddart later on. Esther Stoddart, very gifted woman herself, very godly. In her old age, we're told that after her husband had died, um, women would come in to her house in the afternoon, and she would read and expound the scriptures to them, to these, to these ladies who would come round to her. She she was certainly a very gifted woman. Uh, Jonathan was their only son, but they had ten daughters. So he had ten sisters, and all his sisters were six feet tall or taller. So they used to speak of Timothy <coughs> Edwards with his sixty feet of daughters. <laughs> Jonathan was um, taught by his father I suppose you could call him an early case of homeschooling. He was taught at home by his father uh, up to the age of 12, uh, when he entered Yale College, 1716. Um, by the age of 13, he was reckoned to have a good knowledge of Latin, of Greek and of Hebrew. He was a very precocious child, very gifted. And uh, I think he knew that he was gifted. Um, He was very aware and confident of the very special intellectual gifts that he had and his powers of logic and of reasoning. He graduated with a BA in 1720 at the age of 16, spent another year studying for his M.A., which he didn't graduate in until 1723. Now, coming to his conversion, at the age of nine, there was a revival in East Windsor, and Jonathan and some of the other young people were greatly moved, awakened, and concerned about their soul. And uh, Jonathan and his friends built a den for themselves in, in a swamp, and they used to go there and uh, held prayer meetings. So this was him at the age of nine. Gradually, the effect wore off, and the den was used for fighting Indians, or pretend Indians. Um, At the age of 12, another revival came through the neighborhood, and again, uh, Jonathan was moved. But that too wore off. At the age of 16, uh, he was seriously ill, suffered from pleurisy, he was at death's door, and he speaks of himself as being shaken over the pit of hell, convicted terribly of his sinfulness. And he speaks of himself as a, a miserable seeker, seeking after salvation and longing for salvation, and longing for assurance, longing for peace with God, and yet troubled greatly with doubts and with fears. Sometimes this sort of dying down and then being stirred up again. But at the age of 17, while contemplating the verse, First Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, now unto the king eternal, Immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As he contemplated that verse, light shone into his heart. Joy and peace and assurance and a vision of God flooded his experience and the doubts and the fears were taken away. Assurance came into his heart. And from then on, his central resolution was to do all that he did to the glory of God. The passion of his life was to glorify this great and magnificent and majestic, wonderful God who had come into his life with peace and assurance and forgiveness and salvation. So that was his conversion then finding assurance and peace with God at the age of 17. Then, looking at the ministry, he was licensed to preach the gospel when he was still only 18. He went then as a supply preacher to New York, August 1722, and he was there until April of the following year. He enjoyed this experience very much. He stayed with a (coughs) Mrs. Smith, and um, she was a godly woman, and uh, her son, um, John Smith, he had great fellowship with, and uh, it was a blessed time in his experience. He would go out sometimes to the riverside, and there he would have fellowship (coughs) with God, and times of prayer, and times when... He was given great insight into the truth and seen, seen the wonders and the glory of God. Um, by the end of these nine months there, the people, the people in the congregation he had, had separated from another congregation. And by the end of his nine months there, they became convinced that they should go back and join with the congregation they left And uh, so, in a sense, Jonathan Edwards did himself out of a job. But he was happy for them to be reunited with the majority of the congregation. Following that, um, he became pastor in Bolton, a small uh, town quite near his home in Connecticut. Um, And he was pastor there for about... Um six months or so from november seventeen twenty three till may seventeen twenty four but it wasn 't a very happy time in his experience he didn 't enjoy it he didn 't see himself fitting in there and then, in seventeen twenty four he was appointed a tutor at yale college we 've got to remember that he was only twenty by that stage, so at the age of twenty he 's appointed a tutor at Yale. He continued there for two years. In 1726, at the age of 23, he was called to assist his grandfather. Remember, we mentioned him, Solomon Stoddard, the minister of Northampton. He was minister there for 60 years. A great gospel preacher, a gifted theologian himself saw many revivals, and was highly revered by the people. So uh, Jonathan comes along as a young man to work with this uh, very old and respected minister. The following year, he married, married Sarah Pierpoint. She was a minister's daughter from New Haven. Immensely talented and very godly, He had noticed her at the age of 13 and had noted down in his diary about this godly young lady of 13. She was 17 when they got married, he was 24. They had eight daughters and three sons. Jonathan Edwards used to get up between four and five every morning. He normally spent 13 hours in the study. His wife, Sarah, she managed the household, and in some ways the household, the home, was like a little hotel. They constantly had people coming to stay over, and then later on, uh, young ministers, young students would come and study with Edwards. Uh, So she had this Uh, little hotel, as it were, to manage. She had the servants to manage. They usually had a black slave as well. But she also ran the farm. They had a farm to support them. And she ran the farm. She seemed to be so gifted. And her concern was to do everything in order um, to leave her husband free to study, to pray, to preach. And uh, she was... In many senses, the woman, the virtuous woman of Proverbs uh, 31, tremendously gifted and uh, and at the same time a very godly woman, not just practical and good at all sorts of practical things, but also a woman who had some wonderful experiences of God and uh, a very, very godly woman too. Jonathan Edwards would relax with his family in the parlour after dinner and then the day was completed with himself and his wife going to the study where they would um, um, read the scriptures together, meditate on God's word and pray together. They had a very, very close and loving relationship. Jonathan didn't do very much visiting unless he was specifically requested, say, to to visit um, somebody who was dying. Rather, he would see people in a study if they had any spiritual needs. And at times of revival, uh, there would be queues outside a study door of people coming to talk to him about their soul. He saw his gift as studying and writing, particularly was somewhat shy. Uh, He could be very good company amongst those whom he knew and those with whom he relaxed, amongst his friends, but generally was somewhat shy and perhaps a little stiff. He was highly disciplined, he ate as little as possible, and he slept as little as possible in order to, to have nothing distracting him, as it were, from his studies, from the intensity of his studies. But this left him quite weak, sometimes bodily, and subject to, to very threatening illnesses at different times. For exercise, he would chop wood, maybe for half an hour, or perhaps he would go out riding a couple of miles into the woods, and then... Uh, he would spend some time there contemplating God, meditating on God. He kept notebooks of all significant thoughts that he had. And from these notebooks, uh, he later wrote books. His books were written from what he had gathered in these notebooks. If he was out, say, out riding, and um, some interesting thought occurred to him, he would take a little piece of paper and pin it to his clothes and so that when he came back home he would try and remember what all these little bits of paper meant and uh, jot down the, the various thoughts that had come to him. He was a very godly man and sometimes would spend whole days in fasting and in prayer. Solomon Stoddard, his grandfather, died in 1729, three years after Jonathan joined him. So, at the age of 26, Jonathan found himself full pastor of this large and influential church of Northampton. Sunday attendances would be well over a thousand. In 1734 35, there was a powerful revival. Many people were converted. Indeed, Edwards thought at one time that just about everybody in Northampton had been converted. He wrote a book at the time, A Narrative of Surprising Conversions. And this was the book which first set him on the international stage. The book was um, published in Britain and uh, people heard about Edwards and about the work that was done there in uh, Northampton. Later on, Edwards had to reassess what had happened. In times of revival, many people are moved and lots of people think they're converted and others think they're converted and then it wears off. And that, of course, was what happened there too. In 1737, while he was preaching one Sunday, the galleries of his church collapsed, and there were terrific shrieks and cries and great panic in the church. The, you know, this huge church with well over a thousand people in these galleries coming down. The people below, and it was thought that many, uh, many would have died. But amazingly, nobody was seriously injured. Some broken bones, but nobody was seriously injured. And of course, Jonathan. Edwards used this in his sermons to warn people of how close death was to them and how they must prepare for death. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish, as Jesus said to the, to the Jews in his own day, commenting on those on whom the Tower of Siloam had fallen. In 1740, 41, 42, there was the Great Awakening in North America, much more extensive uh, uh, revival, not just in New England, but also in the other colonies, and of course in Britain at the same time too. And uh, George Whitfield played his part in this, although the revival had started before George Whitfield came. Now, there were controversies in um, Jonathan Edwards' life and ministry. It struck me very much just a few days ago, reading my worship, um, what Paul says in Second Timothy, all Asia is turned against me. How amazing it is to think, when you think of the Apostle Paul, mighty preacher, wonderful evangelist, so wise, so full of the Holy Spirit, planting churches in Asia and these churches turning against him. All Asia has turned against me. So there are warnings in these things. Um, Anyone who's involved in Christian Christian work can expect controversy, problems, troubles, attacks from Satan, Satan. And of course, the Christian Institute as a very prominent um, work of God, can also expect um, difficulties and problems and attacks from Satan. Satan hates any good work and will do his best to try and destroy it. So that makes us all watch and pray. One controversy was with regard to Um, the revivals and extremism in the revivals. In seventeen forty one meetings would go on till very late at night, sometimes all night. There were wild emotional expressions, and these were encouraged by some of the young preachers. Past revivals it tended to be a revival in a local parish or maybe in several local parishes, but the minister would stick in his own place. But in the Great Awakening, some ministers started to itinerate around, going to different um, congregations and sometimes to preaching against ministers. Ministers who were seen as perhaps not as enthusiastic for the revival as they were. And these ministers were called dead or unconverted and their congregations were told to forsake them, to turn away from, turn their back on them and uh, separated separatist churches started. James Davenport um, was the most extreme of these young ministers. And uh, at one time, he even had a a bonfire of uh, books. And in that bonfire, some of Puritan works, for example, like Flabel's works, were burnt. But his idea was that they, somehow or other, they didn't have as much light and fire as they should have. And you can see how, how extreme this was. And um, he, he called on people to burn all their jewelry, burn their fine clothes and so on. And uh, it all went to an extreme. Charles Chauncey, who was a minister in Boston, dismissed the revival because of these extremes he tended to stress Christianity as an intellectual religion rather than one which affected the emotions. Now, Edwards was on the opposite side. And uh, Edwards, the intellect was very important, but the emotions must be affected too. If our emotions aren't affected, there's something wrong. We are emotional people. Our religion should touch our emotions as well as our intellect. So a controversy arose. Chauncey um, writing against the revival, dismissing the revival, stressing all the extreme things that were done, and Edwards, while um, noting how wrong these extreme things were, basically defending the revival and saying how much good it had done. The friends, really, the friends of the revival, like Davenport, were the ones who did the harm, and later, thankfully, Davenport himself acknowledged his fault and uh, repented of it. Uh, people like Chauncey were called the old lights, those who were preferred the f- formality as it were, and everything being been done decently and in order and then people like Edwards were called the new lights. So that, that was one of the big controversies and of course Edwards wrote on that subject. A second controversy was the communion controversy. <coughs> Stoddart, his grandfather, encouraged respectable church attenders to come to the Lord's table to communion, even if they weren't converted. He saw communion as a converting ordinance. And as long as a person was morally upright and orthodox in their beliefs, he encouraged them uh, to come to communion. Timothy Edwards, Jonathan's father, took the opposite point of view, arguing that a person should be a Christian, should be converted before coming to the Lord's table. Now, Jonathan, to begin with, accepted Solomon Stoddard's way of doing things. But as time went on, he became unhappy with this. And eventually, he began to voice his opposition. He wrote against it, and he wanted to preach against it, but he met with a huge amount of opposition from the congregation. Stoddart's family felt that Jonathan was criticizing um, their father, their grandfather. And there were parties growing up. Um, William Williams, who was minister in Hatfield nearby, was married to Christian Stoddart, the daughter of. Um, Solomon Stoddard and he was a great uh, he was a sort of patriarch of the Williams family and he was a great admirer and supporter of Edwards but after uh, William Williams had died the Williams family largely turned very much against Jonathan Edwards and there were several of them influential in the congregation and in the local area And so the result of this was that um, Jonathan Edwards was dismissed from his congregation. He was put out of his church in Northampton. Seems shocking to us to think that a minister, such a great preacher, wonderful man of God, um, tremendous theologian, great writer, such a person like as Jonathan Edwards should have been sacked. From his congregation and yet that is what happened in 1750 Edwards was dismissed and that then left him with a problem, what was he to do? He had a big family and uh, he had many expenses and indeed at this time he ran into debt amounting to some £2,000, which at that time was a, an enormous sum of money. Some of his friends in Scotland, had good friends in Scotland, um, Robe uh, of uh, Kilsyth and uh, McCulloch and McLaurin, ministers in Scotland, they invited um, Jonathan Edwards to come to Scotland and they would get a congregation for him there. And uh, he didn't dismiss the idea, but he said he found it hard to uh, think of moving such a large family and household to Scotland. However, the following year, he received a call to work amongst the Indians. Um, John Sargent, who was missionary in Stockbridge, died and Jonathan Edwards was asked to take over from him. And it seems amazing in a way that this great intellectual should become involved in reaching out uh, to Indians. And even there, sadly, in Stockbridge, he moved there with his family. He met with opposition. The Williams family was there. The Ephraim, Ephraim Williams was the kind of squire or magistrate in Stockbridge, and they created their problems. But eventually, Edwards managed to get through all that. Here he had a great opportunity to to write books. It wasn't a busy place. It wasn't a place that was leading to somewhere, so he didn't have lots of people passing through, wanting to stay overnight. It was very much a frontier town and uh, quite a dangerous situation. In fact, uh, at different times, they were under serious threat from uh, Wars with the Indians, the French stirring up the Indians. There in Stockbridge, he wrote some of his great books, The Freedom of the Will, Original Sin, The Nature of True Virtue. He strove to preach simply for the Indians. And he saw a number of them professing faith under his ministry. Then Princeton. The Presbyterians, New England was, as you know, congregational, congregationalist. Each congregation was separate and had its own government. But um, the area of New Jersey was Presbyterian. And the Presbyterians there started the New Jersey College. Um, Jonathan Dickinson was the the first um, president and then Aaron Burr. and Aaron Burr married Jonathan Edwards' daughter, Esther. But um, he died suddenly uh, in his early 40s. Um, and uh, the trustees of the college uh, elected Jonathan Edwards to be a successor. And in Burr's time, the college had moved to uh, the. Uh, town of Princeton and uh, became known then as Princeton College, which eventually became Princeton University. So, Jonathan Edwards was elected to be president of Princeton and he was reluctant to come because he had his great project of writing books and he had several other very important works important to himself that he was very keen to write. And uh, there in Stockbridge, everything was quiet. He was away uh, from things and he could devote himself to his writing. And he wondered, how could he possibly, in a busy college, write his books? However, he asked a council of local ministers what he should do. And they said to him he should go. So in February 1758, he moved to Princeton. And within a month, he died. Um, (coughs) Smallpox was common in the area. He and uh, his daughter Esther and their children, they decided that um, they should be um, inoculated against smallpox. And it seemed to go fine with the rest, but something went wrong with uh, Jonathan's inoculation. And uh, smallpox started in his mouth and his throat. He couldn't drink, couldn't eat, couldn't drink. And so eventually he died. It's interesting really that his father died just um, two months before him. Um, The age of 89. His son-in-law, of course, had died a few months before that. Aaron Burr. Esther, Aaron's wife, died two weeks after Jonathan. And uh, Jonathan's wife, who had been ill at the time, hadn't come down from Stockbridge, stayed there with a family. Um, She eventually came down in order to take Esther's children, her orphan children, and to look after them, her two children. But uh, when she came down, she suffered from dysentery and she died within a few months. Um, October 2nd, 1758, at the age of 48. It's interesting... Jonathan Edwards' um, deathbed, he called his daughter Lucy, who had also come into the area, called her and said to her, give my kindest love to my dear wife. The uncommon union which has so long subsisted between us has been of such a nature as I trust is spiritual and therefore will continue forever. Uh, a lovely way of speaking of his wife. Um, To his children he said, I leave you fatherless, but seek that father which will never fail you. And then he looked round and he said, Now where is Jesus of Nazareth, my never failing friend? When those around him thought he was unconscious, They were talking about the terrible loss to the college, the terrible loss to the church and to the country. How can we go on, they said. How can we go on without Jonathan Edwards? And suddenly he spoke out these last words. Trust God and you need never fear. Great words. Great words to end his life. Great words for us still today. Trust God and you need never fear. Sometimes it seems so dark around us. Sometimes everything, it seems, is against us. Sometimes the government, the world, even the church might be against us. Trust God and you need never fear. So I would like now to draw briefly. Twelve lessons from the life of Jonathan Edwards. The first is the importance of true godliness. There are many hypocrites, many hypocrites in the church. It was the same in Jesus' time. The scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests... They were the leaders of the professing church. And they took Jesus and they condemned him to death. Hypocrites. They professed to know God and to follow God. But they were the enemies of God. And it's the same in the church today. Many unconverted members, many unconverted elders, ministers, Each one of us has to search our own hearts. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Prove your own self. That's what the scripture says. Don't take it for granted. I was converted so many years ago. I had this wonderful experience. I'm a Christian. I'm fine. A Christian is somebody who's going on with the Lord. And Christian faith is a living faith. And we mustn't live on past experiences. We live in a living relationship to Christ. So the importance of true godliness. Make sure you're not a hypocrite. That was one of the great stresses of Edwards. He wrote that great classic, probably in some ways his greatest book, Religious Affections. Dealing with that very subject. What is a true Christian? What are the marks of the true Christian? <clears throat> Secondly, the place of prayer. Jonathan Edwards prayed on his own. He prayed with his wife. He prayed with his family. He prayed with his congregation. He prayed in his daily devotions. He had his special days of fasting and prayer. He united with men in other places um, the men in Scotland, Rob McCulloch, McLaurin, uh, John Erskine, he, he wrote to them they, 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 and, and encouraged them, and together they set apart uh, a time on Saturday evenings, Sunday mornings, when they would pray together, pray for revivals, pray for missions, pray for God's church. The place of prayer. These things. So important, so important that we, we are praying men and women. Surely if we need anything today, it's prayer. Why are the prayer meetings so, so neglected? Why is this secret place so neglected? Where are the Christians that you see fasting and praying? We need to return to God in prayer. Thirdly, the great work that God can do. Jonathan Edwards believed in revivals. He believed in the mighty arm of God. Believed God could convert anyone. God's power is marvelous. We need God's power. And we need God's power today. And we need revival today. Jonathan Edwards experienced several revivals And although he saw sometimes negative things and people going too far, yet he saw revival as a great work of God. And surely this is something that we should be praying for, looking for, expecting. The God who gave revivals in the past has he changed? Is our God too small? Do we not believe in him and his mighty power to rouse the church? To change and transform a nation. Think of the hundreds of thousands who were converted through the great awakening. Yes, we need to see these things again today. Great work that God can do. Fourthly, concern for the salvation of his own children. That was a big thing with Jonathan Edwards. Teaching his children. Praying with them. Praying for them, writing letters to them in which he spoke, pleading with them about their soul, about the need to make peace with God, to make sure they were converted, not to let another day pass without knowing that they were saved. He would take them on journeys with them, on horseback, and talk to them there, stressing to them, the vital importance of their soul salvation. Our great concern shouldn't be our children's education. It shouldn't be that our children do well. It shouldn't be that our children be highly thought of. In a sense, who cares for these things? If our children end up in hell, what good is that? No, we must... Plead for our children's salvation. We must show to them that nothing is more important to us than that they be saved. The great longing and passion of our heart must be for those whom God has given us, that they be saved. And that's the way it was with Jonathan Edwards. He had a great concern for his children. And he saw God working in his family, in their salvation. A fifth matter is the importance of guarding the Lord's table. Many churches leave it to the individual, whether you take communion or not. And no church discipline as such is practised. But Jonathan Edwards eventually came to see this thing as so important that he was prepared to sacrifice everything for it. Sacrifice his congregation, sacrifice his salary, sacrifice his home for the sake of this matter. The Lord's table is a holy table. And only those who have a creditable faith, only those should come to the Lord's table. People who are converted and who are living a consistent Christian life. The Lord's table is not simply for anyone who's respectable and orthodox. It's for those who are the Lord's people. Only the Lord's people should come to the Lord's table. (coughs) Only those who are putting their faith in Jesus Christ as their saviour. Only those who have a personal relationship with the Lord. For whom the death of Christ is really meaningful. Who are every day feeding upon the broken body and the shed blood of Christ. Daily by faith. These are the ones who should come to the Lord's table. And the eldership, the leadership and the church should guard the Lord's table. And should make sure that people come Thoughtfully and seriously to the Lord's table. Remember what happened in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Many people were sick and others had died. Why? Because they were treating the Lord's table superficially, eating and drinking damnation or judgment to themselves. It's serious. The Lord's table is holy. We are to approach it with seriousness. It's only for the Lord's people. Sixthly, the error of Arminianism. Arminianism, the idea that man has free will to save himself, can choose God and can choose salvation when he likes, if he likes. Jonathan Edwards saw this as very important and he wrote Against Arminianism, that great book, The Freedom of the Will. And it's rather interesting that the Arminians of New England eventually became Unitarians. Unitarians who don't believe in the Trinity, don't believe in the Atonement. This idea of A rational, um, intellectual kind of religion. Man's ability to choose and man in control eventually became a religion of merely following the example of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount, rejection of the doctrine of the Trinity. And Jonathan Edwards saw the vital importance of the sovereignty of God And that salvation is all of grace. And it's all down to what God did. God did in election. God did in the atonement. And God does by his Holy Spirit. Seventhly, the duty and blessing of hospitality. The Edwards had an open home. And the Bible tells us, be not forgetful to entertain strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. And that was certainly the case with Jonathan Edwards. One of those whom they entertained in their home was David Brainard, who had been a missionary uh, and was a missionary to the Indians, came to their house sick and he died there. But his prayers in their home well, that were a great blessing. Jonathan Edwards and the family. When he died, he left behind a diary. And Jonathan Edwards um, laid aside all his other projects at the time in order to edit that diary. And he produced it. It became his most popular work, The Diary of David Brainard. It influenced many missionaries. The interesting point about it was, It wasn't the successfulness of David Brainard in getting lots of converts. He had his converts. That wasn't the great point that was stressed. We so often think in missionary work or whatever, how many converts? What churches did he build? But the great point of um, the diary of David Brainard was the selfless devotion of Brainard to God. His sacrifice. His giving of himself and his all to God, to the service of God and to bringing the gospel to the Indians. The duty and blessing of hospitality. Eighthly, the best of ministers can be put out of their churches. An interesting point. Edwards He had so many converts, saw two great revivals in Northampton in his time. Eminently godly and yet dismissed from his congregation and hated, really hated by some of his people, people who had professed faith under his ministry. Party spirit came in and he was thrown out that's interesting it's important to remember paul too had his opposition even in corinth there were parties against him who were despising him so we shouldn't be surprised if we have hard things in our experience if we are faithful to the lord ninthly the god's overruling sovereignty Why did God take Jonathan Edwards from that great centre of Northampton and put him into a little corner, Stockton, Stockbridge? Well, one of the effects was that he was able to write these great books. The freedom of the will, original sin, and the nature of true virtue. That was one of the reasons God's sovereignty overrules in our lives. All things work together for good. God knows what He's doing. And so God took him from a busy situation so that he could produce these great Christian classics. Tenthly, God doesn't need our gifts. That's an important lesson, too. Edwards died at the age of 54. If he had lived on in Princeton, just think of the young generation of Americans, educated Americans, who would profit from his teaching, his leadership, his godliness. He had these great books that he wanted to write. A new kind of theology book that he had planned. New way of, as it were, putting systematic theology together in a historical fashion. Redemptive history. He had these great projects and God took him away from it. Why? Because God was showing he doesn't need anyone. He doesn't need you or me. Sometimes we think we're indispensable and we think We're so important to our little church or wherever it is or this organization we're involved in. And God may well take us out of that situation and others will fill our shoes. God is in control. He knows what he's doing. God doesn't need your gifts or mine. And it's wonderful that he doesn't and that he's sitting upon the throne in control. Eleventhly, the importance of preparing for death. Sooner or later, it will come to us all. Edwards spent his life preparing for death. And when it came, it was a peaceful and blessed deathbed. He had assurance of his salvation as he entered into eternity. He spent his life Seeking to be holy. And now he was going to be with the Lord whom he loved. Where is Jesus of Nazareth? My never failing support. John Wesley said, our people die well. Wonder will it be like that with you? Will you die well? We can only die well we live well. We live with God. Finally, an optimistic view of the kingdom of God. There's too much pessimism around today. The idea that things are just going to get worse and get worse and get worse and and the world will become stronger And Islam will become stronger. Roman Catholicism, perhaps, will deceive more people. Whatever it is, secularism, Romanism, Catholicism, or or, or Islam, or whatever. The Christian church, just gradually fading away. We shouldn't have that kind of pessimism. We are to have great faith in God. Jesus taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Why did he teach us to pray that? Because the kingdom will come. And bit by bit the kingdom is coming. It will come. God reigneth. Let the earth be glad. God is in control. We have tremendous passages in the scriptures to encourage us. Think, for example, of Psalm 72. His kingdom shall reach from shore to shore, from the river to the ends of the earth. Whose kingdom? King Jesus. And all the kings and all the mighty kings on earth before him down shall fall, and all the nations of the world do service to him shall. The kings of Sheba and the Isles, to him shall service do. Seba and Sheba, the Arab nations, they too will come. Yes, they will come. They might follow Islam for a while, but they will come and they will bow the knee to King Jesus. And the Jews too will be converted to Christ. Just come back from a trip uh, to Israel. It was interesting to to see in that land how the nation of the Jews has been has been for thousands of years since suffering because the blood of Christ rests upon them. His blood be upon us and upon our children. And this came to a great climax with the Nazis in Germany. And six million Jews massacred. And what do we see now? We're seeing bit by bit, Israel established 1948, bit by bit, The country is growing and prospering, being defended from all the enemies round about. You would think time and time again that Israel wouldn't have a chance of surviving. Why does she survive? Well, Romans 11, the Lord will graft into the olive tree that natural branch which has been cut out, cast out for so long. We are to look for it, long for it, Life from the dead for the Gentile world as well. God will do great things. Jonathan Edwards had an optimistic view of the kingdom of God. Let's be optimistic. We've got a great God. And let's look for great things from this great God.
0: Thank you very much indeed, William. Right, we have time then for some questions, either points for clarification or questions that people might want to put. I cannot believe how anybody can possibly ask a question because every bit of it challenges me and I have no hope of getting to where this gentleman is hoping we all get to. I can't see me getting there. I only hope there's a lot of grace around at the end of time for me.
2: But thank you very much indeed.
0: Say amen to what you said tonight, brother. I just wondered the significance in your reference to the six million Jews in the Holocaust. Could you um,
2: say more on that, please? Perhaps just a little. One of the things that really struck me was going through the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. Um, through the children's section, one and a half million children were butchered by the Nazis. You go through this dark room and there's little stars, as it were, in the ceiling. And um, Very solemnly, the names of these children are being read. Their name their age, the country they came from. And very, very moving. Um, You know, the tears were streaming down my face. And then you come out on the far side of this museum onto a kind of platform area. And there you see in front of you Jerusalem blossoming, flourishing. The Nazi aim was to destroy the Jews, wipe them off the earth. And there they are (coughs) growing and flourishing. And So it came to me very strongly that God has made these promises to the Jews. He made promises a way back even to Abraham. In thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Um, Your seed shall be as the stars of the sky for multitude, as the sand by the seashore, innumerable. And uh, this land I give you and to 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 your family forevermore. These sort of promises and it just struck me how um, God has, as it were, brought this judgment upon them to a climax. And now he seems to be blessing them, but only in material ways so far. But they are being blessed very much in material things. But I'm certainly looking for God to bless them in a spiritual way, taking the blindness from off their eyes so that they will see the Messiah. And truly be saved. Very sad at the Wailing Wall to see them there praying, weeping, crying, crying for Messiah to come. Messiah has come and they didn't know him. But God is able to take the blindness from off their eyes. And I believe according to uh, Romans 11 that when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, then all Israel shall be saved and the saving of Israel will be as life from the dead to the Gentile world. I look for that blessing internationally upon all nations through the conversion of the Jews.
1: Um, In my, as I've kind of experienced other streams of churches outside of the Reformed stream, why do you think it is that, in my experience, churches with much weaker theology and a much weaker grasp of church history actually have a greater burden for revival than the reformed tradition where we, we, we've got the heritage of people like Edwards Whitfield, Spurgeon and it seems to be other streams, charismatics etc that seem to be much more burdened in looking for it. I wondered if you could maybe expand on that a little.
2: Yes it, it is strange um, we should be the most burdened, we should be the most enthusiastic because of our knowledge of Scripture, knowledge of church history, and so on, but we're not. I think there's a difference between knowledge and godliness. You know, we can know and not practice. Um, also, sadly, there can be a kind of hyper Calvinism where we say, well, if God means to convert the heathen, he can do it without you or me. You know, this sort of idea that God can do it, God doesn't need us, sit back. We've got the knowledge, we've got the gospel, we know it all. And a kind of apathy and a false, false Calvinism. Really, um, I think the, the reading of Edwards And men like that should stir us up to see what true Calvinism is about. Yes, we believe in a sovereign God. Because we believe he is sovereign, we must obey him. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to all nations. Sovereign God commands us to go out with the gospel. Sovereign God commands us to look for great things to happen from this great God. So we should stir ourselves up. Yeah, thanks. Thank you very much. That was absolutely magnificent. It was great to hear somebody who has great faith and a great God.
0: What's been on my mind for a while? The answer's there, but I'm just skirting around it. Maybe you could get me there quicker. The sovereign God who can do everything, uh, requiring our prayers for revival
2: and for the lost. Could you just speak a little bit on that? Yeah. I think it was Spurgeon who said that sometimes God doesn't answer our prayers because he likes to hear us praying to him. Um, Like a parent who likes a child to come and talk to him. So God doesn't answer us immediately so that we will continue praying because God loves us to pray to him. And prayer is so important. Fellowship with God. I think sometimes we get the wrong idea of prayer. And we think of prayer as a kind of, you go through a prayer list, and it's a very kind of dead sort of thing. You read through this list and you say, God give me this, God give me this, God give me this, like a shopping list, you run right through it. But really, essentially, prayer is fellowship with God. It's going into God's presence, talking to God, meeting with God. It's seeing God. And the glory and the majesty and the magnificence, the sovereignty of God and delighting in his presence. And in a sense, the prayers that God answers are the prayers that God gives. We need the prayer to come down from above and then they will rise up to him and he answers. So there's there's our duty to pray and then there's God enabling us to pray. The two things work together. And we are to, to seek and to strive and to plead with God that we might be able more and more to pray. And so somebody said, pray until you pray. You know, because everything is not prayer. Keep praying until you pray. And so we, we have to seek God's help to pray and to plead with him. And God delights in answering our prayers.
0: I confess my great ignorance of what Jonathan Edwards wrote, but you mentioned that perhaps his greatest book was um, on the religious affections. I wondered if you could just tell us why, why you thought that. What, what is it about?
2: There's a book which took up quite a bit of his time, and uh, he saw it himself as a very important book. Um, religious affections, it deals basically with um, the marks of a true Christian. What is a Christian? Um, Deals with hypocrites, with those who aren't Christians, and what is a true Christian? Now, um, it's very important for us in looking into our own lives to be involved in self-examination. Are we truly Christians born again following the Lord Jesus, trusting in him, walking in his ways. Do we have a, a living faith relationship? And this is what uh, the religious affections deals with. So it's, it's, a, it's an aid to us in doing what Paul tells us to do. Examine yourself, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves.
0: Can I ask a final question? Um, if real revival were to come what would we expect to see? Is that too silly a question, William?
2: Certainly not silly, but it's a very difficult question to answer because God always takes us by surprise. I mean, we look at an individual person's life, their conversion. Um, Maybe before a person is converted, they think it's going to happen in such and such a way. I remember in my own experience looking for certain things to happen in my life and they never happened. God, God worked in a different way. But certainly the, the sort of things we would expect would be um, within the church of God a greater conviction of sin, a greater humility, a greater... View of the greatness and glory of God. So repentance, returning to the Lord, valuing the Lord Jesus Christ, um, a seriousness in Christianity which is not there. Um, So the Christian church itself, there would be a returning to the Bible and a returning to um, repentance and confession of sin, uh, returning to holiness. And then Outside, um, in the the world at large, an interest, a concern, atheists, agnostics, being convinced of the truth, power accompanying the preaching of the word. Sadly today, you know, we are very orthodox preachers, but we ask, where's the power? You know, people come into church, they listen to a sermon, they go away, and they're not affected. I see that in my, my own area In Glasgow, we try and reach out and we persuade people sometimes to come into church and they'll maybe come for a few weeks and then they drift away again. And I just long for the day when God will come with power through the preaching of his word. Um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14 speaks of that, somebody coming into the assembly and being convicted, convicted of their sins, falling down, and confessing that Jesus Christ is among you indeed we need that power And so to see the, the whole of society as it were turning away from the pursuit of pleasure the pursuit of riches and seeking after God that's what we would love to see yeah.
0: can I say thank you very much again to William for his talk and the challenge of that talk and I think he's left us a lot to think and pray about so we're very grateful to you once again for coming tonight and for your talk.